We read the word of God in Genesis chapter 9, continuing our series through the first chapters of Genesis. The text for the sermon today will be the first seven verses of this chapter, and we will read the first 17 verses. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. The hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you be ye fruitful, and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth. And multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh. That is upon the earth. We read God's word that far this afternoon. And we focus our attention today on the first seven verses of this chapter. The words that God spoke to Noah and his sons, according to verse 1, were spoken to them on that same day when Noah built up an altar and offered burnt offerings to the Lord after the flood in thanksgiving for God's salvation. God spoke the words of our text into the ears of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his three sons. They are words of blessing, words of exhortation, words of instruction, and that concerning their life on the earth after the flood. You may have noticed that some of the words that God speaks in the text are very familiar because it's really a repetition of things he said to Adam and Eve. 
But you no doubt also noticed some of these things are new revelations that appear in Scripture for the first time here in our text. From that day when God first spoke to Adam and Eve, the day that he created them, until the day of our text, there were two great events intervening. Two great events which explain the background and the necessity of what God says in the text. And the first of those was the fall of man into sin. The second was the flood. The fall of man into sin resulted in the fact that all human beings come into the world depraved, sinful, and that the curse of God, the curse of death, is now upon man and upon all creatures, and that the peace that once existed between man and man and between man and beast is broken, and now there is violence and death in the earth. Those are the results of the fall. The result of the flood was that all living things on the earth were completely destroyed and wiped out so that now the earth is without creatures until Noah and his family and the animals left the ark, which we considered last time. What God is doing here in our text could be summarized with the theme of the sermon this afternoon. God is reordering human society so that human beings might be able to spread and propagate and grow and fill the earth, and so that they would be preserved and protected in a wild and violent world. And all of that with a view not only to the growth of the human race, but the gathering, defending, and preserving of God's church in the earth, and above all, the text has as its goal the coming of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the glory of God's name through him. So let's consider it under that theme, God's reordering of human society after the flood. Notice first God's blessing and mandate to be fruitful. Secondly, God's design to preserve man in a wild world. Thirdly, God's goal for all things in Christ. We begin with verse 1 of the text. And God blessed Noah and his sons. Now, if you have read from Genesis 1 up to this point, those words should sound very familiar because that's exactly what we read in Genesis 1 that God did to Adam and Eve on the day he created them. He blessed them. And here again, God blessed them. And we can say the same thing about us. God has blessed us. But the idea of this blessing in the text is that God gave to Adam and Eve, and then later to Noah and his family, the gift of fruitfulness, the ability to bear children. That's the specific blessing mentioned here in our text. Now, it's obvious that God already blessed Noah and his wife with that gift of fruitfulness before the flood because they brought forth Three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it's admittedly a a mystery to us that we might not be able to solve as to why or how it could be that in 600 years of life, Noah and his wife only had three children, three boys, and no daughters. I say that's a mystery and we have to leave it 
in the realm of mystery. But obviously God blessed them, and he gave them to be fruitful. God does not give the gift of fruitfulness to everybody. God withholds that gift from some couples, and he gives unto them the burden of barrenness. It is a burden, it is a difficulty, and it is a sorrow. But any couple who is in the condition of barrenness has to remember that it's not a curse of God. If they are children of God and believers in Christ, everything is a blessing to them. And God blesses them too, even though they must bear the burden of barrenness. But here in our congregation, if we just look around us, we see that God has blessed us. He has greatly blessed us with this blessing of the text, with the gift of fruitfulness. And what's good for us to remember then from the text is exactly that. This gift of fruitfulness is a blessing. It is a blessed privilege and a blessed joy, as we sang earlier, to be able to bring forth children. The text not only says that God blessed them, but he also says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So having given them this blessing, now he gives them the mandate to be fruitful, to exercise that gift of fruitfulness and to bring forth children. Again, we hear echoes of what God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. He said that to them on the day that he created them, the day that he brought them together in marriage. On that very day, he said, now be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And that is exactly what happened until the flood wiped everybody out. Now God says it again to Noah and his three sons and their wives Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The will of God expressed in the text is that even after the flood, God wants to fill the earth with human beings. He wants there to be humans from shore to shore and from land to land and throughout the islands of the sea. He wants to fill up the world that he has made with human beings. And so God comes to married couples and he says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. God deals differently with the animals that came off the ark. God didn't have to say to them to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, although that was his will for them as well. But the way God deals with animals is differently because they're not creatures like us. God plants into them the instinct to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. There is a certain mayfly that I learned about in the Danube River Delta Basin in Romania, where the Danube River empties into the Black Sea. And this certain variety of mayfly, they plant their eggs, and it takes several years for those eggs to hatch, and for those little flies to mature two or three or more years. And then all of a sudden, after all that time, these flies burst forth out of the river in a massive swarm of flies, and 
they only stay alive for a few hours, and then they die. So for three or four years, they're maturing and growing, and finally they all fly out of the river, and they have one purpose, and that one purpose is to find a mate and to breed and to be fruitful. They are given this instinct from God. So that a spectacular mating frenzy takes place for a few hours, and then they all die. It's amazing. And that's only one example of countless other examples. God gives to animals the instinct to be fruitful and to multiply and replenish the earth. God deals with human beings differently because we are higher creatures of higher intelligence and higher morality, rational, moral creatures. So God comes to us with a command, with a mandate. He says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And God expects willing obedience from us human beings. Because the goal of God is to fill the earth with human beings. Now, does this mandate still apply to us today? Obviously, God spoke this to Noah and his family after the flood when there were no other humans in the earth. And it makes sense to us that God's goal was for them to spread and to fill the earth. But if we look around us today, the earth sure seems to be full of human beings, doesn't it? I recently finished a book by Mrs. Jean Cordering, the wife of the late Reverend Jason Cordering. They spent 10 years of their life in Singapore and made many trips to other countries like India, Myanmar, Philippines. And Mrs. Cordering writes in her book that one of the things that struck her on their many trips to India was the fact that the streets in India are swarming with people swarming with vehicles and trucks and motorcycles and all kinds of people, and that's the way it is in the Philippines as well. Pretty much everywhere you go in Manila, you find traffic, traffic, people everywhere. And we know that the earth is the home to billions and billions of people, and that just in the last century, the world population has grown to staggering numbers. And so it's a valid question, isn't it, to ask whether the mandate still stands and applies to us today. But if we begin to reason that way, that it seems to us that the earth is already full of people and therefore probably this mandate no longer stands and no longer applies, that's a dangerous way to interpret the scriptures. Because in the Bible, as Christians, we believe this is God's word and this is God's will and God is speaking to us that we can't just dismiss what God says unless God himself shows us that it's fulfilled and complete. And he never does that with regard to this mandate. We read through the rest of Scripture, and we never hear God telling us that this is now fulfilled and you no longer have this calling. And therefore, we have to be very careful about saying that it is fulfilled and we no longer have a calling in this regard. God alone knows the specific number of people that he intends to bring into existence. We don't know how many. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they are to be brought into existence, in what country and place and time. And God has a certain number of his elect people, a very specific number that he intends to bring into existence and to salvation. And we don't know who they are. We don't know where they're going to come from or or what nation they're going to live in. But we do know that God 
promises to gather many of his elect people from the children of believers. So the mandate does come to us, even now as Christians in the 21st century here in Canada. God says to us too, as married couples who are able and have the gift of fruitfulness, be fruitful and multiply and bring forth the covenant seed. We might wade just a little bit farther into this matter and ask maybe a controversial question of, is it a sin then to decide not to have children? Is it a sin for a couple that is married, that is able to have children as far as they know, to make the conscious decision we don't want to have children and we're not going to have children? Well, let me just point out a few things about that. First of all, it is true that the mandate of our text is not one of the Ten Commandments. We don't find this mandate in the moral law, in the Ten Commandments. And therefore, disobedience to the mandate is not necessarily disobedience to one of the Ten Commandments as such. Nevertheless, there it is. Whether it's one of the Ten Commandments or not, there is the Word of God in the text to us. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And in the second place, although it's true that a refusal to have children might not be a violation of one of the Ten Commandments as such, if we would examine our motives for why is it that we decide not to have children, then I think we would find almost inevitably, although not necessarily always, a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. We know that the Ten Commandments speak to our outward life, our outward actions, but they also speak to our inward life, our motives. God's law regulates all of our decisions, all of our desires for our life. And I think of just one commandment. Think of just the first commandment, where God says to have no other gods before me. And if a couple decides we're not going to have children, against this calling of the text in Genesis... Why is it? What's the motive? Very often we're going to find there, if we are honest with ourselves, the motive is idolatry. We're serving a different God. We're serving the God of money. We're serving the God of pleasure. We're serving the God of freedom without responsibility. We're serving the God of wanting to fulfill all of our hopes and dreams for our life rather than walk in the paths that God has showed us. Are we not? not to mention all the other commandments in some way or other. What about those couples who are not Christians and who don't know this mandate of the text, who don't read the Bible at all, and they decide not to have children? Is that a sin? Well, then we have to just remember that God writes the requirements of his law on everyone's hearts. And not only that, God has a general revelation. We saw with those peculiar mayflies in the Danube River that every few years they hatch and they fly up into the sky and they have a mating frenzy and then they die. And everybody sees those things in nature. Everybody sees the animals and their instinct to reproduce and to be fruitful. And why then would we human creatures be exempt from that law of God in nature? 
Everybody can see the will of God all around us. It's that we will be fruitful and multiply, have children if we are able. Now, all that being said, God does not tell us in the text how many children to have if we are able to have children. He says, be fruitful. He says, multiply. He says, replenish the earth. But he never says there or anywhere whether we should have one, two, three, or ten or more. So in regard to that, let's remember a couple of things. First of all, don't judge. Don't judge other people. If they have ten children and you think that's way too many children, let's not scoff at those who have huge families by our estimation. And if there's a couple who doesn't have children, let's not judge because we don't know the circumstances of their life. We don't know. Maybe they don't have the ability to have children or maybe they have legitimate reasons that we don't understand for why they have only a few children. Rather, Let's encourage and comfort those who must walk the way of barrenness. And let's rejoice in every child that is born. And let's keep our positive attitude that children are a blessing. Children are not a hindrance. Children are not a burden. Children do not get in the way. Children do not block us from having the happy life that we want to have. Children are the gift of God heritage of the Lord, a precious gift. Psalm 127 and Psalm 128 and the whole of the scriptures emphasize that main point. Oh, the blessedness of the man and the woman who are given children. Like arrows in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Stalwart sons and daughters won't be afraid of the enemy when they stand in the gate But godly parents who raise up godly children will have the blessing of the Lord. They will be like olive plants sitting around their table full of hope and promise, sweet. Lo, that thus shall the man be blessed that fears the Lord. And God promises to gather his elect people from our children. As God is reordering human society after the flood, the first thing he says to Noah and his sons is, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. But there was more that God had to say to Noah on that joyful, happy, and hopeful occasion. God also assured Noah that day that he would protect him and his children and grandchildren and the whole human race And he would preserve the human race in the midst of a wild and violent world. Notice four things here. First of all, God said to Noah, reassuring him, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Perhaps Noah would be tempted to be afraid now that he sees all of these animals, these lions and bears and perhaps even small dinosaurs and soon-to-be predators again. Animals that once lived in peace with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but who had become violent, predatory animals after the fall, whom God had subdued for a time in the ark, now gone free into the world again soon to become violent predators 
hunting, attacking, and killing, God assured Noah, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I will take care of you. I will preserve you and guard you and your children and your grandchildren because I have put into the animals a fear of you so that they will fear you more than you fear them. Because man, too, would be vulnerable to those predators. So God did a wonder of his providence, placing into animals that fear of man. And although we know that if a man probably foolishly wanders into the savanna without any way of protecting himself, and there a lion leaps on him and kills him, yes, that happens. Or if a man swims in the ocean among great white sharks, foolishly, then if he is killed, yes, that happens. But as a general rule, God is teaching in the text, I will put into the animals a fear of you. They will be afraid of you. They will be terrified of you. They will leave you alone. God does that. We look around us and see that in nature. Scientists can observe that too and point that out to us. But the reason for that is in our text. God did that, and God does that for the good of his people especially. That first. Secondly, God says at the end of verse 2, Into your hands are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. So with those words, God tells Noah that he has given him power over the animals. Again, we hear echoes of Genesis 1. And God said to Adam and Eve, I give you dominion over the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and the fish of the sea. Dominion. Have dominion. Rule over the animals. Here, God essentially repeats that. And he says to Noah, I give them into your hand. I give you power over them. Now we can notice that as well if we look around us. Which creature on the earth dominates the earth? Which creature rules over the earth, over the land and the sea and the mountains and valleys and fields? Man does. Man rules over the earth. Why is that? Because God has given all creatures into his hand. Now, with great power comes great responsibility. That's always the case. And as God has placed into man's power the ability to control the animals, to reign over the animals, God also gives to man the responsibility to care for the animals not to carelessly destroy his creation, but to care for his world and his creatures as best we are able. But God also gave to Noah the, the, the permission to eat the meat from animals as well. Verse 3. In the beginning, God did not give that right to Adam and Eve. He said in Genesis 1, I have given every green herb to you. I have given the leaves for you to eat, and the fruits, and the nuts, and the berries. You may eat all of the produce of the trees and plants of the earth. But he never gave permission to kill and eat animals, even after the fall. We never read of that until this verse. It's very possible that people did kill and eat animals, 
But if they did so before this time, they did so contrary to the will of God. They did so without God giving them permission. As we heard this morning in the sermon, we have to remember every creature in the world belongs to God. All the cattle on a thousand hills, all the chickens, all the cows, all the horses, all the wild animals in the field, all the fish of the sea belong to God. And what right do we have to take God's creatures and kill them and eat them unless God gives us that permission? We don't. They're God's creatures. But in this text, God has given to man that right and that privilege. God gives as a gift the animals for man to kill and to eat and to put food on the table in addition to the green herb. This text teaches us that there is nothing morally wrong with eating meat And there's nothing morally superior to being a vegetarian. There's so much confusion in our society today to know what is right and what is wrong according to the scriptures. And our text shows us that the God who created all things has given to man permission to take every living thing for meat in addition to the green herb. So that in the second place, and in this too, God is protecting and preserving mankind from the animals. He gives man the power and the right to reign as a good king over the animals. In the third place, God says in verse 4, But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. That's a very interesting Verse. While he gives man the permission to eat meat, he doesn't give permission to eat flesh with the blood in it, according to the text. The blood of animals in the Bible symbolizes the life of that animal. Later, Moses would write this in Leviticus 17, verse 10, as one of the civil laws in the Old Testament. Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul." Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. The blood of the animal represents the life of the animal. And that makes sense to us, of course, because the blood is the fluid that brings life-giving nutrients to all of the parts of the animal. And so God said, You are not to eat the meat with the blood in it. John Calvin says this in his commentary on the verse, that God's purpose with this was to, quote, accustom men to gentleness, end quote, lest human beings would become wild, barbaric savages. God told them, do not eat 
the flesh with the blood in it and do not drink the blood of animals. We saw that in the book of Leviticus, God gives as the reason that the blood of the animal is for the atonement of sins. God's purpose was that they would shed the blood of animals, catch it in a basin, carry it into the Holy of Holies. Think of that. No one and nothing was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies except for one thing, the priest and the blood, the blood of animals, and sprinkle it over the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Because that blood represented something sacred. That blood pointed forward to the blood of the Lamb of God, which would be shed on the cross. In the New Testament, in Acts 15, we find a similar prohibition. At the Jerusalem Council, the apostles were dealing with the problem of whether or not we must do works in order to be saved. Some said by works and faith, some said by faith alone. And the apostles saw fit, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to give this decree to the churches, Acts 15, verse 29, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Because of that New Testament reference, there is perhaps some struggle to understand whether or not this still applies to us today. It's really not much of a question for us today because here in Western nations, it's not normal for us to eat animal blood. But there are other countries in the world where it is customary to eat animal blood. Because through the ages of history, man has become savage, and usually in heathen lands where there is idolatry and a rejection of the true God and his word, then pagan practices have taken place and taken root. And so on the mission field, this question does come up. Is it wrong for Christians to eat the blood of animals? Now, our ordinary response to that would be, this commandment is in the Old Testament. This commandment was in Leviticus. This was a civil law, and that law pointed forward to Christ, and Christ fulfilled that law when he shed his own blood on the cross, and that would be good argumentation. But there's that reference in Acts 15, which is after the death of Christ, after the resurrection, and there in the New Testament church, they're telling the Gentiles in the mission churches, don't eat blood. Why is that? How do we understand that? Well, one possible way to understand it is to say this still applies to us today and God's will for us is don't eat blood, period. But another way to understand it could be that in Acts 15 we have the record of what we might call a synod. And what we have there is a synodical decision. A decision made by the churches of that time for the churches of that time but not necessarily a universal rule. That's a possible interpretation as well. As I said, it's not really an issue for us here in our country, although it's still good to learn what the Bible teaches. 
The basic truth of Scripture is that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God, and he has given us meat to eat. We can eat it with a clear conscience. The New Testament, you'll find many scriptures which wrestle with problems like this. Is it wrong to eat the meat, or is it okay to eat the meat? And you'll find a consistent message of the apostle is, if you eat it or if you don't eat it, it's indifferent. What is important is that you understand it's a gift from God, and eat it by faith. If you eat, eat by faith, and if you don't eat, you don't eat by faith. Whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. If we live or die, we belong to the Lord's, to the Lord. Or in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5, Every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So if we were on a mission field wrestling with this particular question, Those are the kinds of things we need to think about rather than laying down unnecessary burdens for new Christians. The spiritual truth, of course, is that our Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled that law by his death on the cross. And now he says to us, except a man eat my flesh and drink my blood, he has no life in him. And he didn't mean to eat his physical flesh and drink his physical blood. But he meant, come to me, believe on me, and then you have eaten and drunk unto eternal life. This law, too, God laid down to Noah for the preservation and protection of the human race and especially of the church. In the fourth place, God goes on and says to Noah in verse 5, Surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. There God assures Noah that he will preserve the human race and the church Because God himself will take vengeance on the evildoer and the murderer. The man who sheds the blood of another man, God will require his blood. God will send forth wild beasts to devour him. Verse 5, at the hand of every beast will I require it. We think of the bears and the lions and the snakes that God used in the biblical times to bring vengeance upon the ungodly. We also think of the lions whose mouths God shut when Daniel was in the den because God protects his children also from the wild beast. But God also says, I will use the hand of other men to bring vengeance. Verse 5, the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. In verse 6, God is instituting the ordinance of capital punishment. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Some have said that God was establishing government here for the first time. But the truth is, government was established in the beginning. But here, God establishes capital punishment. 
This, too, is an issue in our society today. Many people oppose the execution of murderers, but in that they oppose God himself. God lays down here as an ordinance for the preservation of order and society that the murderer be put to death. If you shed a man's blood, your blood must be shed. God's point in that is to deter people from murder. He's preserving the human race, not only from wild beasts, but also from wicked men through the threat of capital punishment. The ground that God gives is that in the image of God made he man. Man is not like the beasts. Man is a rational, moral creature made in God's image in the beginning. And when you kill a man, therefore, you are killing a person capable of bearing the image of God. So all of these verses here show us the overarching truth of the text, that God is reordering society after the flood. Now what, what is the goal of God in all of this? All of it points to Christ, ultimately. Why did God tell them to be fruitful and multiply? To bring forth the human race. To bring forth the church. But especially to bring forth the Christ. Christ had not come yet. God said, be fruitful, multiply. Because it was through Noah, through his son Shem, that Christ would come. Why did God put fear in the animals toward man to preserve the human race, to preserve the church? Yes, so that Christ could come and be born in that human race and out of that church. The goal of God is not that man will develop a glorious, wonderful civilization on this earth. Technology and art and architecture and science and all the rest. God does intend for those things to happen, but God's purpose is not ultimately with those things, but with Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, God wrote through Paul that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he would gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. God has determined all things for Christ. And before the foundation of the world, Here, after the flood, all of history points to Christ, revolves around Christ, and centers on Christ as the one through whom God will glorify himself, even capital punishment. God instituted capital punishment not only to deter murder and preserve human society, but God had his eye on the future. He had his eye on the cross. He had his eye on Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Jews gathered together, crying out for the crucifixion of his son. The greatest injustice that has ever happened. He would send his son into the world to submit to capital punishment as one who did not deserve it. To submit to the terrible, horrible cross of the Romans. And there to submit also to the judgment of God for our sins. 
Finally, why did God give Noah dominion over all these animals? Why did God give him power over all the creatures there too? Not for Noah's sake, but he had his eye on Christ, Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, the apostle writes that God has crowned him with glory and honor. God has given Christ dominion over all the earth, over all the animals, over all humans, over all creatures. God has put all things under his feet. And what a joy and hope that gives to us. As we know now that Christ reigns over land and sea and over all creatures, and he's coming again. And when he comes, after all of God's children have been born, after every baby has been born and saved, every heathen elect has been gathered out of darkness, when Jesus comes again, he will make a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be no more fear, no more death, no more violence, perfect harmony among all God's creatures and all God's children. That's a day we look forward to. Amen. Father, we thank thee for thy word and how it applies to all of life. We pray that thou would give us good instruction from this text, that even if these things don't all touch on our lives completely at this moment, grant that we might take from the text what is most useful and applicable to us. Grant, Father, that we might love to learn from the riches of thy word. We thank thee that it's a light onto our feet and a lamp onto our path. Help us to live in this world as those who look for a world to come, when our Lord, who reigns over all, will make a new heaven and earth. Go with us now with thy blessing. Keep us in thy care. 